1 Corinthians 13 from verse 1 through 5. Um, if you can please stand with me. This is the word of the Lord. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a nosy gong or a clanging symbol. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Love is not rude. And love does not insist on its own way. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Uh, Jesus, your word is sharp. And it doesn't return back to you void. Your word is truth. It liberates. Your word is powerful. It changes lives. May it do all those things this morning. For the sake of your name. For the glory of your kingdom. Amen. Would you please grab a seat. Uh, very excited about this series. Uh, it's, it's as real as it gets. We're just talking about relationships. Because relationships are what life is about. And we choose to make life about other things. But by the end of the day, God's invitation for us in life is to build relationships that reflect his love for us. That reflects his love for creation. And that reflects his love. And that even borrows from his love of the son and the son's love of the father. So when we are doing life, and, and part of my job this morning is to... Revisit how we have developed thoughts around love over time. Because I think that is important. A lot of us, what we have learned about love is something that we were told or something we experienced or something we felt. But when you come to scripture, God shows us what true love is and, and God describes it. So my hope is... You won't take my word for it. You take scripture for it. Amen? That, that by the end of the day, it won't be like, oh, he said this. It will be like, okay. And then that is in scripture. And your wrestle will be with what is in scripture, not what over time theologians and the philosophers and, and movies and people have defined um, love to be. Last week, we saw something that is really close to my heart. We saw that the way we have treated relationships, our relationship with one another has been the same way, literally, almost dot to dot. The same way we treat stuff in shops, commodities, the way we look at the things we want has been the way we have developed our relationships with one another. And we, we saw that Part of our culture, we love to consume stuff. And the thing about consumption, consuming things, is there will always be upgrades. But also when we are building our lives around consuming things, 
we realized or we realize that we are always carrying an anxiety. We're always carrying an anxiety if we have made the right choice. It's like you go to game on Black Friday and the only thing you can get your hands on is the cooler box. And you're there like, should I buy this? But everyone looks like they're buying it and I don't know what I'm going to put in the cooler box, but I got to get it, but then I don't know. So you walk out of game just not sure if you're regretting buying the thing that everyone has bought, but at the same time, feeling like, hey, I at least have a cooler box. Like, I can put fish in here. I can put drinks in here. I can buy ice, put it in a cooler box, and just watch it. Like, you figure out what to do with whatever you can have. My point is, when we consume, there are a lot of things that we lose. And one of it, we dehumanize. We look at people as commodities. What do I get from you? What can you give me? If you can give me that, I walk away. When we consume, we dehumanize. We also push people. And, and at the core of that is, you adjust to me or I'm out of here. So I want you to start thinking about the relationships as, as we pushed last week. Like, is this how you look at the relationships in your life? You, mom and dad, are supposed to adjust to me. Oh, my son and my daughter are supposed to adjust to me. I'm the father. I, I carried you nine months. You remember that life? Like, yeah, I carried you nine months. So, so you adjust to me. But, but, but for me, I want to be asking, like, wh where do we get that from? Adjust to me or I walk out. It's the same thing. Some of you walked away from different phones, right? Because the phone could not give you what you wanted, you upgraded to something that was even more expensive, and even not even have value for the money, but it just gave you a different identity. That oh man, she's an iPhone user. Hallelujah, he's an iPhone user. It's like a class thing. Like you, you buy stuff to be seen in a certain class. When we consume. We push people to adjust to us. And the problem with that, the us we are pushing people to adjust to is in a lot of ways selfish, unkind, literally has built everything around me, me, and me. So what happens over time when we are pushing people to adjust to us, you are in a relationship with people that you feel like things are going great because everyone has adjusted to you. But then after some time, you hear people saying, man, I can't do this anymore because this is abusive. And we are surprised. Like, I thought everything was going great. But no, you pushed everyone to adjust to you. And we have seen that in marriages where the husband pushes the wife to adjust to me. So the wife tries the first three years, then five, then seven, then they have kids, and then he, she's still adjusting, and she just loses it. I can't do this anymore. And in that moment, you're like, babe, we've had the most amazing 10, 15 years. Like, no, you've had the most amazing 15 years because you made me adjust to you, selfish and kind, rude arrogant person. So what am I saying? 
as we're talking this morning, I want you to be thinking about how you are creating relationships around you to adjust to you. Some of you, you have seen your parents saying that to each other. You have experienced it. And to an extent, you know if they were just a little bit more patient with each other. A little bit more kind. If they were not rude, if then if mom did not push her own way, if dad did not push his own career above family, you know. But somehow we see that, but it just makes us create something different instead of learning and asking the questions about like how, how do we go about loving well? When we are consumed, we are anxious. And anxiety is, in a lot of ways, fear of being exposed. But that comes from, we've created a culture where everyone feels like they have to measure up to something. So you have people walking around feeling like, I have to measure up. So when people meet each other for the first time, and the 15th time, they're still wearing a face that I got to show up. And measure up. So there's zero depth and a lot of anxiety. Because if they only know who I'm really deep down, they won't like me. They won't accept me. So you have a bunch of people saying they're <laughs> head over heels with an idea of a person. Because they're afraid to truly show who they are and that person is afraid to truly show who they are. So they're in a relationship that they're just in love with an idea of each other. It takes years to truly know someone. Ask your married friends. They're, they're, we have amazing married couples in here. Ask them. They'll tell you, man, when I said I do, I didn't know what I was signing up to did not but I'm learning to love the person she's becoming or he's becoming because to an extent we feel like when we are making those vows are for that moment then we add in stuff like I promise to love you in sickness and in health like it's fine it's cool to say it in that moment and sickness and health shows up you're like man you got, babe, you got to adjust to me. And, and as a Malawian man, you've seen it. You've seen your mom sick and your dad still wanting her to make meals for him. You've seen it. You've, you've experienced it. And as a kid, that's a lot of you as men, you're carrying that. You don't care how your girlfriend or your sister is feeling. She has to adjust to you. A couple of years ago, we, we had a talk with a bunch of dudes. And it was something to do with education for women. And in that conversation, we learned how toxic our male culture in Malawi is. That the little sister who was writing exams had to come back home, hallelujah, and make meals for the dudes who have graduated from school and are just staying at home. And you know, it feels sad, but haven't you done that to your sister, dude? You have, like the girls are agreeing. <laughs> because that's a reality. That's where they're living. That's what they're wrestling with. Like right now, you go back home, play video games while she's making meals for you. 
for you. Like, dude, who do you think you are? Like, seriously. All right, let me not get that mad yet because it's going to get somewhere. Uh, when we consume, we are trapped in comparison and competition. We don't really know each other. We go around comparing to each other. And I know I say this a lot. But can you enjoy your relationship if you don't post about it? Or you only enjoy the person you have because you've posted about it and people have liked it. Come on now. We live in comparison. Comparison is a trap. Comparison is a trap. A lot of you are trapped in it. Comparison is a trap. You don't see the goodness of the people in it. You, you want what they have. That's where greed comes in. That's where coveting comes in. All these other things come in because you're busy comparing. And the world has made you think you are not unless you have. Put it in the blank. Unless you have what? A degree? Really? Really a degree is an amazing thing. But you're not your paper. You're not it. You're not your school. Ah, yeah, you are because you have someone that loves you and calls you bae or whatever you call each other. No. No, you're not that. A lot of us are deeply rooted in comparison and we are very unhappy. Because our happiness is dependent when we have as they do have. That is sad. That is sad. When we consume, we commodify people. Commodification. My Chandler said it in a way that I, I liked. He said, you were created to be enjoyed and known as a soul before you are enjoyed as a body. Like before... Someone knows you as, hey, this is my sexy partner. God created you to be fully known as an individual with your fears, with your struggles, with your battles. That when you're moving to a place of deep intimacy like sex, you are fully known, you feel secure, you feel protected, and you feel someone has chosen you. But when we commodify people, we buy into the idea of romance that we have today, where sex was a design. Oh, sex was designed by God. God is good, amen. And God was in heaven, was like, man, I'm gonna create this. It's gonna be so good. And boom, confused humanity, confused us so bad that we idolize the thing God created. To the point that, from something that was beautiful made by God, to allow us as human beings to deeply know each other. For you to know your husband, for you to know your wife, it has become a test for love. Let me explain that. It's become, how do you know this person loves you? Uh, it's how good they are in bed. So you have kids, you have teenagers, you have college kids trying to pursue each other, 
by testing if they really love each other through what? Sex. Without the safety, without the being known, without the being loved, without the commitment, without the power and the beauty of the gospel present, it's become something that has destroyed a lot of us. And we still try to say sex is just sex. But a lot of you know you've been hurt because you thought sex was just what? So I'm not demonizing sex. Sex is God's idea. It's beautiful. God made it. It was like, dude, this is good. This is amazing. This is, I want you to marvel at this, to enjoy it, to celebrate life, and to do, 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 and enjoy each other. And we showed up as like, nah. If she really loved me, she's going to show it. We commodify people. When we consume performance central, not commitment, performance. And that leads to superficial relationships, no real depth. And a lot of you know you've been hurt because there's no real depth in your relationship. Now, a consumer also asks, what am I going to gain from this relationship? It's like some of you were about to buy Airtel shares, and that's the question he asked. What am I going to gain? You're a consumer right now. Hallelujah. Like, well, you're going to go out and, and you choose a list of restaurants you're going to have lunch at, and that's the question you're wrestling with. What am I going to gain? But that's my way or no way. But God's invitation is for us to learn love his way. That the way we do relationships should be God's way. Now, when you start going back to theologians, to people, and you find dudes like uh, Plato, he had a way of defining love as eros. And I remember Ian did a little good work with that. That over time, theologians and philosophers started wrestling with, okay, what is really love? And eros. And that's simply a longing for what I lack, a desire. And that's what, in a lot of ways, constitutes what love is, like a desire. And actually, right now, for a lot of us, our romance, everything is built around that. I behold some quality in a person that I need, and I desire to be united to that person. So from, from the beginning, we had people thinking, they say, okay, this is what love is, the desire I have for a person and for a thing. So, so we build our faith, we build our theologies, we build our pursuits around that. And then St. Augustine came, and he was like, no, 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 no. Love is a desire, yes, but it's also a gift, agape, Right? Agape, or agape, agape, whatever, however you pronounce it. And it was like, love is combined. In love, you find a desire, but then you also find a gift. You find a desire that, you know what, I desire that person, I desire that thing. At the same time, you find a gift. I love you because I want to do good for you. That's agape. And it simply depends on the benevolence of the lover. And when you start thinking about it, you see that for us, a lot of us in the church, that's what we see love to be, right? That there's a, there's a sense of agape 
and there's a sense of desire, a love centered on God and a love centered on other things. We see that love is these two things. I have a desire, I have a desire, I have a desire that I have to meet. To an extent, it's like, oh, can I give it as a gift? Can I give that? Now, when you move from Augustine, you go to guys like Bernard and Aquinas, who wrestled with love in a different way. And this is where the Luthers will even show up later. And if you, f- you follow church history, uh, you understand the impact Luther had. Uh, Martin Luther is a guy when the Catholic Church had a bunch of rules of how to get saved. He read the Bible, and basically, we owe the conversation around justification by faith alone to this man. What that means is, he came to a place of understanding, and you know what? We're not justified by what we do. We're justified by believing in God. Now, before I even get there, Bernard and Aquinas go to a place where they said, God loves us by enabling us to love him, which to an excess carries out Ephesians chapter 2, that we believe in God, we've been saved by grace, and it's through faith, and that faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. So, by the end of the day, God loves us, and he enables us to come to him through his word. So, are, are you following me, and are you following yourself, how you have defined love over the years, and, and God loves us by enabling us to love him. Love was its own reward that God loves God so much that he has rewarded himself to us. Now the reason why I'm even taking time with these things is because if you don't know what and how you've defined love, it gets how you believe or what you do with love a little bit more complicated. And all I'm trying to say is What you have believed about love, has it been informed by God? Have you looked at God and say, I see love? Or have you looked at, huh, this is what I like, and have settled there? Now, from Aquinas, uh, we come to Luther, who said, (laughs) Eros is Platonic, Agape is Christian. So you see that shift of, ah, that is not really from God as much, but the love from God is our God. This is a love we have pushed. This is a love we have preached. That love is a selfless gift. Love is sacrificial. And all these things are true. I want you to, to not think that's not what I'm saying. We, we've looked at Agape and said that's God's way to man, while Eros is man's way to God. Agape has been God's grace, freedom in giving. Agape loves and creates value in its object. And that's where the switch happened. That we started demonizing eros because we wanted just agape only. Because agape sounded a little bit more Christian. Agape sounded like the love the church should do. When we look at God, God gave his son, his only begotten son, so that's what love is. That's what love is. God loves us no matter what. That's what Agape got us to. God loves us no matter what. 
And God is an infinitely rich and most generous giver who receives nothing in return. You see, we sat down and say, Eros is platonic. Agape is the Christian way. Agape is sacrificial. Agape is God giving and not wanting anything. Agape is God. Agape is God. Agape is God. Therefore, God loves us no matter what. Doesn't that sound true? Doesn't that sound like come as you are? God loves us no matter what. God is an infinitely rich and most generous giver who receives nothing. He doesn't want anything. He just wants to love us and to just lavish us and, and to just get us to a place. God love for love's sake. God's love is pure. It's a pure gift. And then conditional acceptance. So you know how we've translated that? So you're messing up. God loves me unconditionally. Who are you to judge me? Hello. God, his love is so pure. He accepts me the way I am. Like, you sure God doesn't want you to change? It's like, no, you're the one bringing that idea. No, no, no. If you love me, honey, you have to adjust to me. Are you seeing how we have turned a good agape conversation to, yeah, I can get the Bible to do what I want. And then a whole generation of men started reading the Bible and refusing to change and started manipulating women and just going to that one verse. Oh, the Bible says, submit to me. You got to adjust to me. That's all we're saying. Oh, honey, you got to adjust to me. Come on, baby, you got to adjust to me. That's what the, it's in the Bible. God saw you messed up. I am better than you, so adjust to me. Like the, the same idea of it. We, we believe in a God who is love, a God who is... We turn that to God loves us no matter what. Now, I have to be careful. Because in that conversation, you see God taking us to Romans 8. There's nothing that can never separate you from the love of God. Nothing. And gives us a list. But, but when we just look at our own definitions of what love is, we fall short. Because our biggest beautiful way to know and understand what love is, is only reached to its place and its proper place when we look at how the Father Loves the son. How the father loves the son. And the first thing I want us to see is that the love of the father and the love of the son is very deeply rooted in affection. God's love for the son is deeply rooted in so much affection. The same level of eros, the same level of pleasure, the same level of want and need. You see it in God who involves affirmation and affection filled with pleasure and you saw it. This is a my son in whom I'm well pleased. He said that around baptism. He said that around crucifixion. And in that moment it was not simply about performance. 
Because Jesus had not gone to the cross yet. And God the Father is like, that's my son. That's my boy. Like, uh, okay. In whom I'm pleased. But why are you pleased in your son? Like, um, he's going to die. Like, you sure about that? You sure he's not going to die when it gets hard? You sure he's not going to go like, you know what? Father, I'm God. I don't think I have to do this. Are you sure? No, no, no. God the Father looks at the Son and delights in the Son. Showing us that love is deeply rooted in affection and pleasure and desire. Men and I, when you feel that as a Christian, as a human, it reminds you that you are an image barrier. You carry the image of God who looks at the Son and shows affection. Now, I don't know what your growing up with your dad was like, but a lot of us have a lot of damage for our dads who never really showed affection to us. So that the first dude that showed us affection, we just surrendered to them and just, and they ended up manipulating us. For me, I met a bunch of dudes that were thieves that just were so cool and loved me as a kid to be around them. So those are the guys that taught me all the bad stuff. I've said it before. When I was around 10, they'll send me to get hookers for them. 10 years old. 10. Because to me, it was like, oh, dude, there are these dudes that love me as a kid and they just want me to, to feel special and to feel like I belong, to feel like, oh, man, this is so cool. When you look at the love of the father and the son, you see affection. The other thing we see, we see that love is giving. When we look at God, we see the father gives all he has to the son. <laughs> oh, man, I love scripture. I love scripture that God chooses his fullness to dwell in the son. There's nothing God the Father holds from the Son. Everything God the Father is. This is, a, this is the image of the invisible God. Colossians, right? Do you remember that series? That you look at Jesus, you're seeing the image of the invisible God, the God you cannot see. Look at Jesus. You want to see how loving God is? Look at Jesus. You want to see how kind God is? Look at Jesus. You want to see how God is patient? Look at how much Jesus is patient with you. Look at how much Jesus is kind with you. Look at how much Jesus is forgiving with you. You want to understand what God is like? Look at Jesus. So when we look at love, in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, we see that love is given because the Father gives all he has to the Son. The Father doesn't just give of himself. Like a little part, 60, 40, 30%, or 90. No, no, he gives himself to the Son. The fullness of God dwells in the Son. Dwells in the Son. To the point of identifying, we found love in an awkward place. To the point of identifying himself with Jesus. Whoever has seen Jesus has seen the Father. You, you've heard that verse, right? Jesus talking that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Show us the Father, people ask. And Jesus said, if you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. You see that love is given. 
giving of identity. <laughs> giving of all we have. Giving of all we are. Meaning, if you want to love the way God is inviting you, you cannot say, add just to me. Because that is not love. If you and your spouse refuse to sit in love and the love that's giving its own identity all the stuff you have your ambitions, your dreams your fears now I love in the garden and I've said it again and again because I would never start marveling at the story in the garden and Jesus is praying to the Father, say, if it is your will, let this cup pass away. That moment of deep pain shows you how Jesus was even giving up his fears before the Father, to the Father, whom loved him deeply. That our worst fears, our worst troubled moments, should not be kept from the people we love, from the people that love us. Because when you look at Jesus, when you look at the Father, you see that in the moments of anger, in the moments of fear, in the moments of pain, they're continuously giving of each other. Because love gives. In other ways, love does not ask, what do I get? Love asks, what do I give? If you are not ready to give, you're not ready to ask someone's daughter in marriage. I'll just put it there. If you're a dude, you're thinking about marriage, and your idea of love is, what is she going to give me? You're not ready. You are not ready. You are not ready, my friend. You're not ready. If your love is simply about adjusting. And right now I know the argument is like, but what if she? Then she's not ready. Because God's design and desire is two people that are asking, what do I give to do life together? It's like a competition. Like I'm going to give. Oh, I'm going to give. I'm going to give my body. Oh, I'm going to give my body. Oh, I'm going to give my time. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to give my life. I'm going to give my life. Literally, a competition of two people that have understood love is not only affection, the romance, the romanticism, but love is, I'm going to give my time for my wife. I'm going to give my time for my husband. And a lot of us, we want to commit to marriage without wanting to give. Let me save you from trouble. You're not ready. You are not ready. This is the most painful, loving thing I have to say to you. You're not ready. Learn what love is from the Father. Learn what love is from the Son. Learn love from the Holy Spirit. But if you, you go your own way, it's going to be painful. You're going to come to Scripture and want to twist Scripture to fit your sin. Come on. To 
adapt to your sin. And then love is exalted. And I love this. Love is exalted. Love and affection. Love is given. And love is exalted. The father exalted the son. Scripture even says above all things, yeah? <laughs> that the father's just like, yeah, this is my son. He's like the best. He's like the greatest. He runs the whole world. Actually, everything was made by him and for him. Like, your God the Father, shouldn't everything be yours? Like, no, 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 no. Everything I have is for him. And the son shows up like, I am in the Father. The Father is mine. Everything I am is the Father. They're like, who are these people? What, like, what's going on? Love is exalting. The Father exalted the Son, put all things in subjection under his feet, established the Son as the head of all creation, gave him a more excellent name. The Father loved the Son. And then that love is shown in his desire to see his son glorified above all creation. Because love promotes. Love looks at your spouse. It was my wife's birthday yesterday. Hello. Hey, baby. I see you. Love promotes. Like, it's not lack of self-esteem. But I still wonder, why did she say yes? You know what I mean? It's like, like, yo, man, this is amazing. Oh, man, look at her. She's amazing. She's good. And then I have this weird thing. I just want people to see how good she is, how amazing, how kind she is. Like, have you seen my wife? Like, hi, have you seen her? That's love. Love exalts the other, celebrates the other, wants the other person to be celebrated. doesn't outdo each other. Your spouse shows up with, hey, this has been amazing. And you go like, oh, do you know how about my day? It was also amazing. Oh, man, my family is really kind to each other. Oh, I haven't told you about my uncle who is really kind. <laughs> you know this is true. <laughs> Some of you are doing this while you're dating. You're competing. Who's going to show who that this is better? All I'm saying is husband, celebrate your wife in a way that promotes her. Before people, before yourself, marvel at her. Because you see that in the father and the son. Now the hard work about you is the Bible says, yeah, husbands, love your wife as who? Christ. Not as Katja. But don't we love to love our women like Katja? Like, you know, the Malayan Katja, women stay in the other side. Men will stay in the other. No. Even when I go to a funeral with my wife, I'm going to sit with her. If anyone has a problem with that, talk to me. Talk to me. Talk to me about that. Now, we have just been married for a really short time. And there are people that have been married in this church for a really, really long time. And learning from people like them has taught me, just watching 
them kind of like compete in promoting each other. And I thought, oh, and like, oh, this is just so nice, Alex and Caroline. It's like amazing to just watch you guys love each other in almost like you're competing. And you see there's uh, Ted and Laurie, and, and you're just like, man, I w that's really cool. I would say I want what they have, but I don't know their story and their struggles. <laughs> so I'm just like, by the end of the day, I trust the Lord to deeply root us in the ways of love. What am I saying? Love celebrates and promotes the gifts of the spouse. And a lot of us, we, we're so much pursuing our careers, we don't even see our weakness. And we're expecting one day, one day, we'll just see our spouse and want to promote her, promote him. No, man, it doesn't work that way. Because you, you for a season when it's feeling like it's really awesome and sexy, you do it. But after some time, you start, you're going to start building your own life and your own career. And, and that suffocates relationships. And you know, because you have sin, relationships suffocate from that. What I'm saying is, if you don't learn to show up at church, and promote Joseph and promote the dude that swept this room. Do you know who swept this room? You should know. The person that made you coffee, you should know. The person that cleaned the bathrooms for you, do you know them? If, l if love does not start in promoting those people, it's not going to start when you have put a ring on it. It's not going to happen. The single you will be the married you. Ask the married people. Ask them. There was not like a switch they flipped and <laughs> they started being loving. No. The reason why they pretended for a long time was because they were afraid to be fully known. Up until time caught up with them. They couldn't sustain the pretending. But if you ask them, having someone fully love them and choose them in their moments of weakness and pain, was the best and greatest gift they have ever received. When relationships are something you consume, you cannot have that. You can't. You cannot. You cannot have that. Love exalts. The Father exalted the Son. And, and that's not coming from being puffed up. It's coming from looking at how amazing, how much beautiful someone is in their heart. Not just their looks, because that's where we love to see. It's like, oh, look at how amazing she is or he is. No, God's invitation is for us to go around and celebrate people and call out the best in them. Because if you show up to me and celebrate me, and then on Friday, you go like, hey, man, you said something stupid in the sermon. You know I'll receive that with kindness. But if your first act is to show up and just confront, confront, and beat, and beat, and beat, I'm going to be defensive. Therefore, I won't listen. Therefore, I won't be bailed up. Therefore, I won't grow because I'm still stuck in that place. The loving thing is for you to celebrate the people that are sitting next to you so that you can love well the people that are at home. That's the beauty of our faith. God's invitation is to not love the people that are our enemies only. It's to give grace 
to the people that know better but have messed up. <laughs> Your friend sitting next to you knows better, knows God has sinned, but aren't they going to sin this week? Come on now. God's invitation is for you to go back home and love that person. Love them, love them, love them. Because look, look, look at the father, how he's exalting the son. Now, the next one is something we don't expect because it doesn't agree with how we've defined love. When you look at the father and son, you see that love is obedient. That the, there's this thing called love and obedience. And our definition of love makes love feel like, dude, if, if this has to carry some obedience, is it even love? We're so afraid of that. But when you look at the father and the son, the father loves the son because he perfectly what? Obeys. For this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I might take it up again. That's Jesus. He lays down his life so that he may take it up again. And the father loves him for that. Loves him for that. He came to do the will of the father. Jesus' life purpose. I came to do my father's will. Like, dude, doesn't the father just love you? He already said he loves you. Like, yeah, I showed up to understand his will. He abides in the Father and his love, and he obeys the Father. For Jesus loved the Father with everything he is. Obedience is a condition of love. But when I say that, it doesn't sit well to an extent. But uh, the most silly example I have is we all have phones in here, right? There's almost a law that you can drop your phone in water unless it's waterproof, right? There's a law with cars. There are rules we follow with cars. You can run your car without oil. That's just, it's almost like common sense. Part of obeying what your car wants for it to function is to provide for what that car desires. simple. You know, my car got knocked out some years back. It hit a rock and it kept saying on the dashboard, stop now, stop now, stop now. And then the guys were like, that's a really good suggestion. And they didn't stop. And the car was like, okay, I'm just going to do it myself. The car stopped and it costed us to fix that car we had to do a lot of things that we spent a couple of thousands of dollars. What? Even cars have a way that you need to operate through. You gotta obey some things with cars. You gotta obey some things in life. Like if you love driving, just getting on the road and ignoring what has been set as the law of the land when it comes to driving, you're either going to get people killed or you're going to get yourself killed. It's that simple. And somehow we think if God is really, really love, then this obedience idea 
is quenching of that love. It's not only it's, it's destroying, it's manipulating, it's removing the amazing feeling. Now with that, do you think when God was inviting husbands to love your wives as Christ, he meant only when you feel like it? But no, love your wives when you feel like it. No, no, no. God was commanding. There was a law that you got to love your wife as Christ. Because there's so much beauty and surrender in that. That there's so much you're going to experience when you do that. But, but our culture, our time, if you tell someone, that, you know what? Loving God requires you to obey God. It's just like, no. Love, God loves me the way I am. I am whatever you say I am. If I wasn't, why? Come on now. All I'm saying is, to a level, what keeps your commitment secure is the knowledge that this person is going to do whatever it takes to love me right. And that loving right is because there's almost like a standard he's going to follow in how they love me. If that is not true, love gets complicated. That's why I'm going to sit on that again. That by the end of the day, if you are afraid to commit because you don't need a paper, <laughs> you're like, babe, why should we make this official and even get married and go somewhere? Nah, that's, that's going to remove the love. No, that's going to remove the safety and close your future options. That's all that's going on. In that moment, it's not you are loving that person freely. You are securing your future at the expense of the person you claim to love. So if you're thinking about cohabiting, that's my question. Like, cool, if you are in there, I'm like, hey, are there things we can help you to navigate through that so that we get you to a place of committing to this person that you love? Because God loves you. So when we go around, we'll see that love is affectionate. Love is giving and love is exalting and love is obedient. And those are the things that makes up a beautiful love as we're pursuing God. That we look at who God is and we say, I'm going to internalize who you are. I'm going to internalize your rules. I'm going to internalize who you are, the way you have internalized your iPhone or your Samsung, whatever number there at now, whatever you are, you know you have internalized something to know it where and to use it to the best of its ability. God's invitation is, that's what obedience is about, fully knowing and joyfully choosing to walk in that line. Because when you choose other things, you end up exhausting yourself and creating a facade of what love is. Now, what we are saying is the reason why we want you to think about love in God's way 
is this is sustainable. The other thing, the other way of love is always looking for upgrades. This is the happily ever after, not as kids or babies or as Disney, but this is I'm happily committing to you forever. In sickness and in health, I'm going to give. I'm going to exalt and celebrate you. And I'm going to show you pleasure and enjoy you for who you are and who God has made you to be. And I'm going to stay and stick to you. I'm going to be obedient to God. And I'm going to be obedient to what he has called us to do. In other ways, the reason why we say God's way is better is because it's a covenant. God's invitation for us to be in love, in marriage, is a covenant. For God to invite us to a community like this, he wants us to commit to each other, to commit to growing together, to commit to doing life together. God's way, commitment is central. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church. You commit to love even when you don't feel. The other way is I don't feel like it. I used to love her. But now I don't love her. But like, dude, that was like three days ago. Like, so you're calling it used to? Like, what's happened to your heart? I don't know. I think I've seen another girl. Like, yeah, with all your staying on other women's statuses, that's definitely what you're going to receive. That's what you're going to cook out in your heart. God's way is commitment all the way. Love is, in God's way, affectionately affirming what God is doing in others. I'm going to affectionately affirm God is doing a beautiful work in your heart, in your life, and I'm going to give that the best. I affirm you. You are worthy. You're precious. You're beautiful to me because you are from God. In other words, it's actually uh, compassion, which is love's reaction to seeing on God's creatures, image bearers, that are hurting or oppressed or caught up in sin or under duress. Love is giving oneself to see God exalted in the other. So love is not only affectionately affirming what God is doing in other people, but it's you choosing to give yourself to see other people exalted. If I were to say marriage, marriage is affectionately affirming what God is doing in my wife and giving myself to see God exalted in her. Bus. then we can unpack that in so many books. Because for me to affectionately affirm means I have to understand, I have to know her, I have to love her, I have to understand what eros is, I have to be romantic, sexy, and all these amazing things that God has gifted, gifted us with. At the same time, I have to be a mirror of what God is doing in her life so that when she sees me, she is reminded of who God is and how God loves her, but at the same time, I'm reminded of those things. So at the end of the day, affectionately affirming and giving myself to her. Tim Keller in The Meaning of Marriage. If you're about to get married or if you're married, I really, really highly recommend Tim Keller on his thoughts around marriage. If you want to stay single, I also recommend his thoughts on what it means to be single and how being single can still be and is 
a way of glorifying God and being able to multiply and do work for the kingdom. This is what he says. When, Bi- when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. How much you are willing to lose. Is that my phone? Yes. How much you are willing to lose for the sake of this person. How much your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in the person? I'll read that again. When the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. This is contrary to all the things we want about love. So he goes on, how much are you willing to lose for the sake of this person? Yeah, this person you want to spend the rest of your life? How much are you willing to do that? How much of your freedom are you willing to forsake? How much of your precious time, emotion, and resources are you willing to invest in this person? Because true love is a sacrificial commitment to the good of someone else. And therefore, true love is more fundamentally an action rather than a feeling or an emotion. But that does not mean love is not an emotion. That does not mean love is not a feeling. Because you have seen it in God. But he had to make that statement in a culture where we've just made love about how you're feeling. Yeah, this is how I feel. This is how I want this to go. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for who you are. Help us trust you with everything that we are, everything that we have. But above all, teach us to love. Teach us to love. Teach us to love. Not as the world love, but as you have loved the Father. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.